believe this is our, what, ninth session already? Wow. And we will be looking at our fifth major event, dealing with primarily Abraham, but also a major focus of Abraham is a very, very important covenant. So, we have been looking at primeval history, but now beginning in the middle of chapter 11, but predominantly 12 to the end of the book of Genesis, I call that division patriarchal history. You've got that on your outline sheet. In fact, I have both of them noted there. Primeval history, chapters 1 through 11. Patriarchal history, actually beginning in verse 27 of chapter 11 through the end of the book. And it has four major characters, the first being Abraham. So, patriarchal history deals with the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel had to know this background, and actually chapters 1 through 11 is just something of an introduction, as you can tell by the priority of the, the, the number of chapters that deal with Abraham and his descendants. This is the priority in terms of what the book is trying to communicate. So chapters 1 through 11 are just giving us the background that leads up to this very important individual, Abraham, and then we'll look at those that descend him, the descendants. So Abraham, from chapter 11, verse 27, to chapter 25, verse 18, in my Genesis outline there. And on our little timeline here, we have, obviously, creation, We have fall that we've looked at, we looked at flood, and we've looked at the scattering. I date the flood 2487 in about the most conservative timeline that you can develop in the Bible, not introducing any gaps in any of the genealogies, just taking the numbers as they appear, in the book of Genesis primarily. And now we want to focus on Abraham, you can put him pretty close to 2000 BC, depending on what part of his his life. And giving you the expanded Genesis chronology here, we have the pre-flood patriarchs Adam to Noah, and you'll notice that Noah obviously lives after the flood, and one of his sons lives well into the life of Abraham. And the text doesn't tell us, but we could assume that Abraham had at least information from Shem and perhaps even communication. It doesn't tell us that, but the information would have been passed on, and there's evidence of that, but no mention. We looked at Babel, which is probably no earlier than about 100 years after the flood, no later than 200 years, because of the time frame that we looked at last time. So we're going to focus on Abraham. This date here, 2060, that's the date that he enters the land. And we have that given to us in the biblical text itself. The last date there, this is when they, uh, when, take the bones, that's the end of Genesis. They're, uh, they're in Egypt, where they store the bones, of, or he gives instruction concerning the bones of Jacob and also Joseph. So let's take a look at Abraham, and let's focus on chapter 12, but before we look at chapter 12, let's look at some preceding verses there, and let's just read them. And Mackenzie, why don't you start us off, read uh, chapter 11 in the book of Genesis, and verse 10. This gives us 
the setting of the story for Abraham, 11.10. Remember last time I mentioned that Shem will be the line through which God will work, and it's through Shem that Abraham comes, so we're introduced to the line of Shem in verse 21, and we have the genealogy of Shem given with details concerning ages. And this is where you get develop the chronology of the book of Genesis, is from these numbers. So first of all, read verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a years old, Harpachad. Harpachad, two years after. Okay, so it gives us a clear t- chronology. Two years after the flood, his son, Arpachshad, he's a hundred years old. Gather all those numbers together, and you can put together that same chart that I showed you. Uh, in fact, this chart right there. This is where all these numbers come. If you just add them up, you end up with an age for Adam, the age he gave birth to Seth, the age that he gave birth to his sons, all the way to Enoch, etc. And now we're, we're looking at the genealogy of Shem. And this line here, even though I don't identify it, that, that would be our Pakshad. And see the little gap in there? That tells you that, uh, it's, what is it, two years there on that scale. Holland, do you want to read 2011, 26, and 27? After Terah was 70 years old, he became the father of Abraham. There's another number when he's 70 years old. That's where I get the numbers. This is the account of Terah's name. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. was Okay. Two important characters. The most important one is Abraham. This is his father, and you trace the genealogy. It's through Shem. But there's going to be another important character, Lot. We won't get into Lot, but in the book of Genesis, he's related to uh, Abraham, and in fact, Lot goes with him to the land of Canaan. All right? So I give you a little background. You want to read 30 through 32, Connie? Now Sarai was barren. She had no one. Now she's the wife, if you read preceding the wife of Abraham. She's barren. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son And together they set out from Ur. But when they took Haran, they settled. Okay, so they're from Ur of the Chaldees. I'll show you a map of that in a moment. But one thing I want you to notice, the text tells us that she is unable to have children. And clearly it's a female problem, whatever it may be, because Abraham had a son through another woman. So the problem was not Abraham, it was clearly Sarah. Now that's not so important. What is most important is, is right from the beginning, God is going to show that he can do miraculous things, and the son of promise is going to be as a result of a miraculous act that God does. So he's going to allow Sarai to be able to bear her her son. So it introduces it right away, verse 30. And then again, we have the family mentioned, and we have a couple of historical notes in terms of where they're headed, Canaan, even though Abraham did not know where he was headed until later. And it also tells us that they made a stop in Haran, and Terah dies there, and then Abraham and family move out. We'll see that in chapter 12. So that's kind of the background that we have for Abraham. So let's move into chapter 12, and let's read Let's read carefully. Read verse 1, first of all, Linda. 12.1. And the Lord says, Go, and 
Okay? There's the command. Now, if you put it in the context, obviously the command came before he left. So it's somewhere in that context that we read in chapter 11. So he would have received this revelation from God's while he was still in Ur. And obviously he leaves, and the, the following verses will tell us about that. So we have several things mentioned here. God is making promises already, instructing him to leave, and makes it clear that he's leaving his country, his relatives, uh, to the land I will show you. So he doesn't know where he's heading yet. And then verse 2, we have the promises. You want to do that one, Mark? And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So shall you be a blessing. Okay, so we have some provisions already made, and we'll have provisions for Abraham. He's going to be a blessing, and God is going to bless him. He's going to make a name for him. And a third thing, he's going to protect him. We'll see that in a moment. And throughout the life of Abraham, he experienced blessing. And throughout history, Abraham has been known. He's one of the most famous characters of all of the Bible and is known not only by Judaism, but Islam looks at him as the father of Islam as well. Now, that's a false religion, but in terms of notoriety, at, at least they recognize him, and certainly Christianity looks back at Abraham, and he occurs in the New Testament on several occasions, mainly as an example, and we're going to look at one of those. So some of the provisions focus on Abraham, and these are very significant promises. One of them deals with a nation, so there's also a provision for Israel, God is going to produce a nation through Abraham. So provisions are individual in terms of Abraham, national in terms of Israel. You want to read that next verse there, Randy? And I will bless them, bless you, curse them, you shall all Okay. That is one of the most significant statements in all of the Old Testament because it sets the parameters for all of world history. That one verse by itself. Let me expand on that. First of all, there's a provision for the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations. All nations are going to be blessed through Abraham, and all nations historically have been blessed. And if you look at the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians interprets Genesis and puts it in a worldwide perspective. In the Messiah of Israel, all the nations are blessed. Salvation is made available to all the nations through Israel's Messiah. But even before that, it also states that those that bless Abraham and the Jewish people, the descendants, will also experience blessing. Now, one of the things that I'll do at the end here is show briefly kind of a history of the nations and their relationship to the nation of Israel. And it has been demonstrated out throughout history that the nations that have blessed, the nation of Israel, have been blessed. Those that have cursed them have, in fact, been cursed, and most of them have been destroyed. Now, I don't want to get into politics here, but our nation today is on the verge of inviting cursing because of our 
at least our administration's treatment of the nation of Israel. But this sets the parameters for all the nations and the outcome of nations in terms of their historical relationship to the nation of Israel. Based on what you said a couple of minutes ago about Messiah coming, that blessing to all nations, mm-hmm. then does this promise still hold? Would the blessing be from Messiah or would it still be through our treatment? No, the blessing is... The, the point being is when it says, you shall be a blessing, in verse 2, that's that general blessing, and the way that blessing comes about is, one way, is through Messiah. You can think of a second way where all the nations have also been blessed besides Messiah, even preceding Messiah. Can you think of the other major area? Scripture. Scripture comes through the Jewish people. All of the Old Testament but even just virtually all New Testament as well. The only exception might be Luke, if he's a Gentile, but still it's from a Jewish context. So the nation of Israel gives us the scriptures that bless all the world. So these are some of the provisions of it. And just kind of an expansion of our timeline here, kind of blowing it up, giving patriarchal chronology, That moves us into the next part of the verse. So let's read on. I'm going to read 4 through 7, Loretta. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old, being part of Aaron. Okay, so there's your, your little note of time that gives us, well, this is his birth date, but the 2060 is when he leaves Haran. That's where I get that number. You just add the numbers, basically. All right? So they leave, which indicates the chapter, the beginning of chapter 12 is before they leave. Obviously, he got this revelation. Now they leave. He's 75 years old, and they stop in Haran, and then they proceed. Let's read on. Read 6 and 7 as well. 6 and 7. Or 5, 6, and 7. Abraham took Sarah. Is it Sarah or Sarai? Here, it's, it, her name will be changed. It's Sarai at this oh, point. Sarai. And then her name will be changed to Sarah. Oh, okay. So I went to Sarai and his wife and Lot, his nephew, and all the possessions they had accumulated. So they, they packed up. They uh, basically, no return. We're going to do what God says. Keep reading. And the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Okay. Where did we hear about the Canaanite? Chapter 9, remember? That oracle of Moses where they will be a cursed people. So we're just reminded here, okay, they're there. They're, They're in the land. So even with Abraham, we have the Canaanites there, and they will be a problem even beginning with Abraham. So he leaves Haran. Here's Haran, and if you want to know where Ur is, this would be in the land of ancient Sumer. Doesn't quite show it, but the rivers end in the Persian Gulf. It's not on the map there, but that's where Ur is. In fact, it's a very important archaeological site that gives us a lot of information as to what life was like in Ur 
telling us that uh, when Abraham left, he was leaving high civilization. This was as good as it gets in that time frame. High civilization, place of prosperity. It's not like he... It's not like it was an easy thing to leave. I mean, you have a comfortable lifestyle, and now you got to be a kind of a pilgrim, if you will, or a alien in a foreign land. So you pack the stuff, goes to Haran. The reason they don't go this way is because you don't survive going this way. That's desert. So you go up the river valley. They stayed in Haran, and then the text told us that they came to Shechem, which is in the center of the land of Israel. And there's a map in the land of Israel uh, with Shechem there. So it's somewhat north of Jerusalem. And if we had a bigger map, it would be south, obviously, of the Sea of Galilee. Give you a feel for what it looks like. This is a modern city on the ancient site of Shechem. We have two important mountains. They're not so important in the context here, but later in Israel's history, we have Mount Ebal, which is here. Shechem would be in this area, and then Mount Gerizim. And there's another shot from another angle, Mount Ebal from the bottom, that is. And that leads us to our first implication of what we have here. We could say that God is rejecting the world system and is shifting the way he's going to deal with humanity from here on out. He's going to deal with, through one man, he's going to produce a nation, Charlie Clough likes to describe this as God producing a counterculture to the existing world system. This counterculture is going to go against all of the values, all of the ideas, all of the worldview of that world system. And that counterculture will continue throughout world history such that even today we are something of a counterculture amongst the culture that we live in. So we should not be surprised that what the Bible teaches us and the things that we should value are totally different from the world system in which we live in. But right from the very beginning, what God is doing is he's rejecting that world system and he's going to now choose an individual and work through that individual to accomplish his purposes for all of humanity and all of world history. And what he's actually doing is, this is a separation, it's not a judgment, but it is a separation of one individual that God is going to utilize. Out of all the nations, this man will be the focus of what God is going to do from here on out, this man and his descendants. So we have the rejection of the world system, and in that we also have Alongside of what God is doing in this one individual, we have these unbelieving nations. In general, they're unbelieving. Now, we'll have little bits and pieces of evidence that amongst the nations, there were some believers, like Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. But they seem to be few and perhaps not as prominent as, obviously, what God would desire. So God is dealing and rejecting these unbelieving nations. This will be the old order because these great civilizations, as great as they may be, they all are flawed. They're all basically of the flesh of mankind. 
And in general, these great civilizations are anti-Yahweh, at least. They have a multitude of their own gods, but they have first rejected Yahweh and Elohim. And the fatal flaw of all of these civilizations is obviously man's sin and man's desire for living apart from God. We call that autonomy. So sin is the great flaw. They have great technology. I tried to demonstrate that last time. Remember the technology? It's not that they were ignorant, primitive people. They had high, they had science, they had high culture. So they had technology and culture, but all of it is tainted by, by sin. They also were exposed to revelation. They would have been through at least Noah. And there are some that believe that there even existed at least a Noahic Bible, or at least a Bible that uh, had the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis contained in it. Now, that's not necessarily an inspired text until Moses wrote it, but they would have had the revelation that anyone that had access to Shem, Shem would have known all of those events. And would have, perhaps, there may have even been, a Toledos, or a series of them, that related to the first 11 chapters. They would have heard God's revelation. We also have, like I said, Melchizedek. Abraham encounters him in chapter 14, and it gives us a hint that there were faithful people that knew God, that responded to that revelation and trusted in it, and did have a uh, relationship with uh, the one true God. Melchizedek... This is a quote out of a commentary. Melchizedek appears at a crisis in the religious history of the world as a representative of primitive revelation. Now, we would disagree with that. We would say initial revelation, but not primitive. I mean, all revelation is inspired. And then it says, uh, this quote, still preserved in some isolated tribe before the fresh order is established, we have a vision of the old in its superior majesty, and this, on the eve of disappearance, gives its blessing on the new. And the commentary is re- dealing with Melchizedek. In other words, this is what Melchizedek kind of handing over revelation to Abraham. So Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek in the text, and the blessing is not for the world, it's for the nation of Israel. And for more interpretation on the Melchizedek incident, you can go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where you have an extended passage that gives us a lot of insight into the significance of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20 through the end of chapter 7. So, the unbelieving nations have the flaw, number one. Number two, they did in fact receive some revelation. And I mentioned Melchizedek is the example the text presents. And we might assume that there might have been other king priests. It it may appear, if Melchizedek is an example, it may, be, may appear that there were other kings that took a spiritual role and leadership like Melchizedek and ruled their cities from that perspective, as Melchizedek did. So it's not that the nations were totally devoid of God's revelation. You can assume that just knowing God is just and God does not lead people out. Fourthly, 
I mentioned Abraham, blessed by Melchizedek. That's very significant, as the book of Hebrews brings out. And another significant thing in that blessing, Abraham abandons the world and rejects the, the offer of the king of Sodom. And he's basically doing God's will, and he's not going to be enriched by the pagan king. He receives the blessing from Melchizedek, and it's a spiritual blessing primarily. So he could have had all of that material blessing as a result of that battle that he won in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. He could have taken the spoils that the king of Sodom offered, but he rejected it. So Abraham is beginning to show strong evidence of of faith already. In fact, the life of Abraham is is a story of a life of faith. So he is separating himself not only from Ur, not only from Babel, but also from Sodom. And we'll see Sodom come up later on as well. Abraham being number five, Abraham is called out of the nations. So God's ultimate plan is to deal with evil, and it begins with a rejection of the world system, which is a source of a lot of evil. Linda? Uh, he's probably at Ur. Yeah, he was at Ur because that's where his family was. He takes some of his family, but leaves them in Haran. So that was, Haran was like a stop along the way. Stop along the way. Yeah, right. So God's ultimate plan, we might be able to summarize it here, where God is attempting, one of the first things he's doing is resolving the problem of evil. And at this stage of world history, the means by which God is intervening to deal with evil is through one individual, through Abram. He's going to use other means, but at this stage, it's through one man separating him from the nations. In other words, this is a, kind of a picture of holiness, a separating out. And God is going to develop character of Abraham such that he's going to demonstrate faith and godliness. So this is what God is doing with Abraham. He's dealing with the issue of evil. And alongside uh, what God is doing with Abraham, there's always the kingdom of man, which exists separate from God. We call that autonomous or autonomy. To live apart from God, that's what the nations continue, and you might even consider it a kingdom of man. And obviously, here's where the seed of the, the serpent comes in. His descendants are represented by the kingdom of man. It is a kingdom. And in fact, he does have influence and power over it. Alongside of that, what God is going to do, his plan is to develop a kingdom of God based on grace and faith. And the beginning is Abraham. And through Abraham, he will develop a nation that will eventuate into a kingdom of God. So you have two kingdoms side by side, two cultures side by side that God will be dealing with. And this will go on throughout history. And essentially, this is God's rejecting of the world system, and he will work in Abraham such that Abraham rejects the world system as well. And we can apply these principles to our life as well. We should ourselves reject the world system. We need to live in it, so we live as best we can, but uh, we need to adhere to the principles of the kingdom of God. Make sense? Okay, so 
We can go back to what I began when I mentioned uh, that the scattering lays the foundation for the nations. We can add more uh, insight into what God is doing with the nations and what the Bible's teaching concerning the nations and the place they have in God's kingdom or God's uh, sovereignty. We saw last time Babel, it's rooted in God's purposes in that God actually scattered people such that they did in fact form nations. So the nations are not as a result of evolution. That's what the secularist tells you. We saw that last time. Secondly, we also saw that uh, the nations are a result of God's judgment, not as a result of man's culture, man's civilization, but God's judgment. That's Babel. We can add to that the passage that we've been referring to, Acts chapter 17, 26 and 27, that tells us more about the nations. Uh, first of all, Paul says in that passage where he's refuting the worldview of the Athenians and basically refuting the worldview that was prominent in the first century. And the passage says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. So they have their source in God. And it's from one man. That takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Through Noah and his three sons and the families of the three sons, but ultimately through Adam, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth. And here we have sovereignty, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The nations exist only within the sovereign will of God. And he raises some up. The book of Proverbs tells us and other passages, and he diminishes them as well. So nations cannot go beyond what God has determined. He's determined their times, and nations have finite times. Some of them come to an end. And they also have geographic boundaries that God has determined. And I also mentioned they have a purpose that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. So he has set up a world system and has given opportunity to all unbelievers, regardless of whether they're from the nation of Israel or outside of it, such that no one's going to be able to stand before God and say, I did not have an opportunity to know you. So this is a crucial passage in Acts chapter 17. And that leads to number three in terms of our foundation principles of nations. They're all under the sovereign hand of God. No nation is independent of God's sovereignty, which is reassuring. Fourthly, from the Acts passage, the purpose is to seek God. God has set things up such that people have opportunity to seek him out. So man is really not autonomous. Man can have a relationship with God himself. We'll add to that. You're talking about the nations back then, not then. I'm talking about nations throughout history. Through, throughout history. Yeah, all the nations. Yeah, these pertain to all nations. Yeah, these are early chapters. That, that's why I, I call this class Foundations for All Things, because it gives us the foundations for things that we are experiencing today. And they all began back in the book of Genesis, but also these parameters continue throughout God's dealing with the nations. And I think I mentioned last time, 
the nations, part of what I'll get to on this chart, we'll come back to this, but the nations are also involved in the future in the millennial kingdom. God deals with nations there as well. So these are, in fact, foundational. Another implication, first, number one, God is rejecting the world system in calling Abraham out of the world system. Secondly, very important, is not just Abraham by himself, but what God is going to do through Abraham in terms of, number two, God's covenant that he enters into, not just with Abraham, but with Abraham's descendants. So let's take a look at this concept of covenant again, so that you not only understand it clearly, but so that you also see the significance of covenants in terms of the parameters of world history. Here's our timeline again, and just to put the covenant on the timeline, the first event in Abraham's life that I've got on the timeline is his leaving of Haran, 2060, and arrival and journey to Canaan. And the covenant is 2036. We have a time frame given to us that gives us that date as well. So let's take a look at this covenant. And I mentioned when we talked about the Noahic covenant, why does God enter into covenants? He doesn't have to. He's faithful. He did not need to reveal his will at all. He's not obligated in any way to mankind. In fact, all mankind deserves is judgment. Beginning with Adam and Eve and everyone after Adam and Eve, that's all they deserve. They don't deserve... God is not obligated to give them any revelation of his will. But he's chosen to because he wants to call out people to himself. And again, his character is enough. And his character is faithfulness. He's a faithful God. Anything God says and he does, we can just trust because of his nature. Because of his character. And he has chosen to reveal and that revelation is sufficient. And today we have a canon that is quite extensive, and we can trust it, because it is inspired. The bottom line, he does not need to make covenants. And when you understand the significance of covenants and their essence, you could ask the question, why does he enter into covenant? Because he doesn't need to. But like Noah, remember I mentioned the main reason Noah had a covenant is because it also gave double assurance to Noah. We're going to have something like that with Abraham. Not that Abraham had the same need as Noah, but Abraham, in terms of this covenant, will have a basis to see how God is going to deal with him throughout his life and deal with his descendants throughout their lives. And that's one of the reasons I call this Abrahamic covenant. It sets the parameters for all the rest of world history. Can't emphasize that enough. Including history today. Including what's going on today and beyond today. Because the Abrahamic covenant, I'll just say it ahead of time, reiterate it, is not fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. So there's a unique significance of history that uh, these covenants can teach us something about. And one of the things about covenants, I'll, well, I'll give it to you in a moment here, but I'll expand this unique significance of history. And that uniqueness is that God is sovereign over all events of history. And those events are regulated by his covenants. That's a significant 
concept to grasp and understand. Covenants are recognized even by archaeologists, the best-known archaeologist, William F. Albright. I gave you this quote as well. This is somewhat of a review from the uh, Noahic Covenant. He says, Only the Hebrews, so far as we know, made covenants with their gods or God. Now, I mentioned there, when we were looking at that, he's got it a little bit backwards. It's not that they made covenants. It was that God made a covenant with them. But the point he's making here is this this is unique in all of archaeology. There are no cultures where you have the people entering into a covenant with their gods. This is totally different, totally unique. It's only the nation of Israel that God enters into covenant with. And first of all, it, it begins with the covenant with Abraham. I used the analogy last time, making it more visual here of a mortgage that you might enter into with a bank. Most of you probably have had a mortgage or still are paying one off. And what is the first element of a mortgage or a contract? Any contract, you remember? Parties to the contract. This is a legal document with specific parties to a covenant. So you have a party to the covenant, and if you have a mortgage, it's between you and the bank, or whoever signed at the bottom. Those are the parties to the covenant. So also, we're going to see that these covenants, you might call them contracts, because they're the equivalent of what the ancient people called contracts. They call them covenants, but they're the same as contracts. We're going to see that there are parties to these covenants, and they apply to the parties of the covenant. In other words, your neighbor doesn't have to pay your mortgage. Sorry, you have to pay it. And all the stipulations pertain to you and your mortgage. Similarly, with the covenants, they pertain to certain parties. We'll see that. And there are stipulations to covenants. The loan amount, for example, the interest rate, those are very important. The the amount of the payments, whatever the dollar amount that is, any fees associated with the setup or fees. If you don't pay the payments on time, there might be fees. And if you default on your mortgage, they can take your house, throw you out. That's a contract. It's all written in there. Now, it probably specifies on the repossession a process that they'll go through. You know, we'll send you one letter, maybe two letters, and then maybe send somebody out or whatever. But these are the stipulations of that mortgage. Thirdly, there's usually a term, and your mortgage may be a 15-year. Most of them in the past have been 30 years. In other words, you pay a certain amount for 30 years, you pay it off, and they've got it all set up for you. And then you sign at the bottom here. You sign, and I've got two lines there, one for the bank, one for you. That's what a contract is all about. Your name, bank official. Okay? A barit, which is a Hebrew word for covenant, is a contract. And it's a legally binding document, legally binding contract, just like your mortgage. You're bound by law to abide by the stipulations of the contract. Similarly, any covenant is legally binding. The parties are bound by law. Now, the laws may be different in different cultures, but you're bound to abide by the stipulations of the covenant. 
It can take many forms. It can be an agreement between two individuals. It can be a pact between families. It can be a treaty between nations, but they're contracts with all the same stipulations and parties, all the elements. And this is what's most important. And this is why I say, the third thing here, it specifies behavior to be complied with. This is why I say God abides by his covenant and as a result is the parameters for all world history. Because God is going to fulfill what he has stipulated in that covenant. And he has stipulated certain things in the Abrahamic covenant pertaining to the nation of Israel that will, in fact, work themselves out throughout history and ultimately be completed when the, the, the covenant is fulfilled. Make sense? So nothing in world history is going to sidetrack what God has written down in that covenant. And world history basically is a record of God's behavior of faithfulness. It's also a record of the nation of Israel's unfaithfulness. So history is a record of that, and you can go to history and see how God has fulfilled what he said he was going to do and is continuing in the process of doing that. The mere fact that there even exists a nation of Israel in 2015 is testimony that God can miraculously preserve a people. And I consider the preservation of the nation of Israel after 2,000 years of history of being scattered throughout the world, God preserving them and bringing them back. He is complying with his covenant, and he may be introducing with the coming of the nation of Israel a new phase that we may be on the verge of seeing, which would be his second coming, obviously. So this is very important. Just like in your mortgage, it specifies what you are supposed to do on a monthly basis. So also it specifies what God has committed to. And if there's any compliance on the other party, then uh, that also is specified as well. Covenants. Let me give you a little bit more just so you have a feel for covenants. They're, they're part of ancient culture. They've existed even in the time, obviously, at the time of Noah, because God enters into a covenant with Noah. And we see clear examples in the book of Genesis of covenants. In fact, let's look at some of these real quickly. Okay, would somebody, first of all, let's read Genesis twenty-one twenty-seven, Marcy. And just to kind of save time here, Mackenzie, do you want to do Malachi 2? And do you want to do the next one, which would be Joshua Nine seven, and let's go through all of them. First of all, Deuteronomy seven two, Connie. Okay, Genesis. Yep, Mars. Yep, two and twenty seven. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Okay, the two of them made a covenant. Here's a covenant between two men. Genesis twenty one twenty seven. Abraham and Abimelech. I'll let you read the context to see what was going on there point I'm making is a covenant can be made between two individuals. There's an example. And there's others, by the way, in the book of Genesis and other places in Scripture. Secondly, marriage in the Old Testament is considered a covenant. It's a contract. Today it's considered a contract. Pretty loose today, but it's a contract and it's legally binding, right? 
And there's two parties to the covenant. And a statement of that is Malachi 2.14. You got that one, McKinley? But you say, I just hate because the Lord is between you, to whom you have a place, she is your By how? By covenant. She's your wife by covenant. Now, they were unfaithful to it in Malachi, but it's a contract. It's another example of a contract between two individuals. There's also examples in places in Scripture of contracts between tribes. Now, I don't think there's any in Genesis because there aren't the tribes yet, but in Joshua 9, 7, you get it? But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant? Okay. Between the Israelites and, what was the name of the? Hivites. Hivites. Another tribe, or might even, it could even be nations there, even though Israel was not a nation yet, they were simply a tribe. But they enter into a covenant in the book of Joshua there. And between here clearly nations, Deuteronomy 7-2, Okay, no barit. Make no barit with them. This is where it takes the form of a treaty. It's a contract. It's a covenant. So, point I'm making is this idea of covenants is cultural in terms of ancient peoples and has existed probably all the way back even in Noah's day because of the covenant that God enters into there. And this gives you a little bit of a feel of what these contracts can include. They can include just individuals, they can include tribes, they can include nations. And what we have in Scripture, covenants that God makes with mankind. We looked at the Noahic, we're going to look at the Abrahamic, and just uh, we'll jump ahead and look at the Mosaic later on. We'll look at another one briefly. It's called Palestinian. And there's a Davidic covenant, and then there's a new covenant. These are the covenants that are clearly specified in Scripture in the Old Testament. Then, I just am looking for places where Darwinians follow Okay. You mean unbelievers? No, Darwinians they, they get married with the Yeah. So it's a Baha, it's a Baha. Sure. Yeah, there's nothing to say that. Right. Right. Well, a lot of things that are cultural have come out of a biblical worldview. So let's take a look at this Abrahamic covenant. And the parties, if you read the text, it's God's the one that initiates it. And it's with Abraham. And if you look at some of the passages, it'll specify his descendants as well. Covenant that I make with you and your descendants. Those are the parties. Secondly, there are stipulations. Now, Genesis 12, that's not the covenant, but it's the essence of what will become the covenant. It's only in promise form in Genesis 12. So you need to turn to chapter 15, where God enters into the covenant, but you have the essence of it in chapter 12. And we probably ought to read 15. Where did we leave off? Okay, after, 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to me. Fear not, Abraham, I am the Lord. Okay. 
Now remember, this is right after the incident of the war that he enters into to deliver Lot, who's taken by the armies of the east or northeast. And this is also after the encounter with the king of Sodom and the king and Melchizedek, king of Salem. God appears to him, almost reassuring him. Now skip down, Linda, and start in verse four and read until I stop you. Okay, what uh, he's talking about is Abraham says, "I don't have a kid. How can I don't have an heir?" And in that culture, you could make a servant your heir. So in verse 2, he says he has a a servant by the name of Eliezer. So is this what you are intending, God? And verse 4, the Lord says no. Keep reading. Your very own son. Mm-hmm. If you ride outside instead, look at the animals. If you are able to go, you can go and so Okay. And that is one of the major stipulations that God is going to enter into covenant for. He's going to produce descendants that are so numerous that you cannot even count them. Okay? And the first thing that we have there is there's three major elements of the Abrahamic covenant. One is a seed or descendants. We're summarizing it with one word there. Descendants. Mark. You want to read on. Let's see, read seven, and I'll stop you at a place. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you this land to possess it. Okay, there's a second stipulation. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Okay, stop there. No, read verse 11. Birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Okay. You see the second stipulation before we got into the ceremony part of the covenant? Promise. Promise of the land. So you have a promise of descendants that Abraham could not even count, and a promise of the land. That's the second major stipulation. Now, he's going to get into this interesting ceremony here that involves a sacrifice, so it's going to be initiated by a sacrifice. This is the signing, if you will. In other words... With Abraham representing his descendants and God himself, this is like signing on the dotted line. This is the way they entered into some covenants. There were some covenants that they would take an animal and sacrifice it. And what God is instructing here to give assurance to Abraham, cut these animals in half. And notice what he's going to do next. Just keep reading. Uh, Randy, do you want to read 12? And why don't you stop at verse, verse 13, 12 and 13. Okay, so Abraham's out of it. Abraham's asleep. That's significant because this covenant is going to be an unconditional covenant. Abraham's name is not on the the line. He doesn't have to sign it. Doesn't matter what he does. This covenant is going to follow through. So he's asleep. You want to read further? And he said unto Abram, Go and be sure that they shall be a stranger on theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall have 
Okay, now beginning in verse 13, he's going to lay out some of the history of these descendants. And verse 13 tells us a few little details there. They're going to live, they're going to be strangers in a land. And it's not theirs, it's not Canaan. They're going to be enslaved. What is he leading to here? Egypt. They're going to be enslaved in Egypt. And they're going to be oppressed 400 years. Now this will come about at the end of the, towards the end of the book of Genesis. Let's read on. You want to read uh, 14 also, Randy. And also that nation shall serve for I judge all great substance. Okay, so his descendants are going to come out of that nation. God's going to judge them. We have a prophecy of the Exodus. Loretta, do you want to read 15 through, well, I'll keep interrupting. 15. Now this pertains to Abraham. <laughs> Weren't able to get a word out, were you? (laughs) As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Be burdened, will be buried, buried at a good old age. 175. Keep reading. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet. Okay, the iniquity of the Amorite, those are the, that, that was a Canaanite people. And what he's saying, he's giving the Canaanite culture time to seek him out. But sin is going to degenerate, or the nation will be degenerated, the Canaanites, and God's going to wait till sin has reached its apex, is a good word, yeah. And then he's going to intervene, And this is where he's going to judge. In fact, this is one of the passages that tells us what God is doing when he's displacing the Canaanites and giving the children of Israel the land. Here's one of the passages. It's a judgment. And their sin has reached its pinnacle, such that God intervenes in judgment with the Canaanites. So it's a judgment. We'll come back to that when we talk about the conquest. The time that they were there, they learned a lot too. Yes. They learned a lot from the Egyptians, how the Egyptians do cultivate and all this other kind of stuff. So, so God's just too efficient. He doesn't just judge one That's right. That's right. To teach his people. Stuff. Right. And you can view that period as discipline. And what do we learn in Hebrews class? Discipline is not just punishment. It's training. It's training. Exactly. That's the essence of what it is. It is training. So it's discipline for the children of Israel. Read on. It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. Okay, now, in this ceremony, this this is a solemn ceremony where only God is passing through the parts. That means only God is bound by the covenant. And it's a fiery thing. And God is committing himself. And let's read verse 18 as well. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, the river Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then the following is the specifics of the land. So what we have here in verse 18, the word covenant, barit, and this is the first occurrence in terms of Abraham. So here is the ratification of the covenant between God and Abraham. And in verse 18, the land is from 
Now, there's a debate as to the river of Egypt, whether it's the Nile or there's another river in this area that could be the river of Egypt. But regardless, it, it's quite extensive to the U- river Euphrates, so it includes all of the present-day Israel, but it also includes virtually all of Jordan, all of Syria, part of Iraq. They have never occupied the full extent. They came close in the time of David and Solomon, but they have never occupied the, the full land. Today, you can't quite tell, but the land of Israel is just this little tiny slice. And the distance right there is about, oh, maybe 30, 40 miles. And throughout their history, they've never occupied what God is promising. But this is the covenant. This is what God will fulfill. And they probably will not fulfill the total extent until we reach the millennial kingdom. So there's a land, there's a seed, and from uh, chapter 12 and elsewhere, there's a blessing. That's the third stipulation. We saw that in 12.2 and 3. Israel will be a blessing. And you see hints of it in other passages that deal with the covenant. But the very clear ones in chapter 15 is the seed and the land. But when you think of the Abrahamic covenant, always keep in mind seed, land, blessing. So we have parties, we have stipulations, we have a signing that is unconditional. That's what the imagery is given in chapter 15 there. And later on, uh, we'll find in chapter 17, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. What was the sign of the Noahic covenant? A rainbow. So we have a sign. This is kind of like a seal. You know, when you uh, have your mortgage, the notary will seal your document. This is kind of like a seal. Let's take a break, and I will come back and kind of give you an overview of all of the covenants so you have the Abrahamic covenant in its context.